This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here. It is a uh, steamy July day in the middle of what is still uh, the pandemic and the protests here. I'm coming to you from uh, what is now known as Brooklyn, New York, but is Lenape and Canarsay territory. And my pronouns are she and we. And um, really enjoying being able to be with two very special guests here today, um, the founders and the facilitators of a really wonderful online class that I took recently, Online Finding Freedom, White Women Taking on Our Own White Supremacy. So I guess it's online because we're on Zoom now because it's the pandemic, but it otherwise would just be called Finding Freedom, White Women Taking on Our Own White Supremacy. Evangeline White's and Carrie Points, welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you too. Um, just to maybe dive right in, um, I really enjoyed the class. I thought it was so um, beautiful, not only how you held space and constructed the class, but also, of course, the information and the experiential aspect of it, because I feel like that's so important for people to kind of get some of the anti-racism work that probably changes hearts and minds in a different way that the cognitive and left brain work um, alone doesn't do. And I think you really did a nice, beautiful balance um, with both of those. So either one of you can start, but I'm just curious, how did you start to do this work and and why white women specifically? Either one of you can go, whatever your own personal experience is there. Well, um, we initially thought about doing this work um, in the wake of the 2016 election we were really conscious of the role that white women in the outcome of that election. And we also felt like it was important to do work right here where we are in our own communities um, around our own identities. And so we, we saw in that moment, um, both the truth of the role that white women had played and also the fact that white men were not named in that moment um, in the same way that white women were. So we saw like both kind of the truth of the, the racism of that moment and also the misogyny of that moment. 
And we felt like it was really important to start speak start speaking to what it it means to live at that intersection as a white woman of patriarchy and white supremacy and explore that more deeply and to look at like what does it mean to undo white supremacy inside of ourselves. Mm, I love that inside of ourselves. How do we undo white supremacy inside of ourselves? Um, how do we find it? How do we know it? How do we name it? How do we acknowledge it? And what do we do with it um, right. to undo it? So thank you, Carrie. How about you, Evangeline? I think that I I definitely um, you know underscore what Carrie's saying, and I I also feel like we wanted a deeper vision for white women of who we can be in a racial justice movement, who we can be in the world and how we can see into our future selves and recognize that we get to make choices about who we are and we can actively create a collective identity for white women that counters the, the narrative that we were seeing so um, prolifically on social media about yeah. like the Beckys and the Karens and all of that. And okay, I know what those are and you know obviously what those are, but some of our listeners may not know what those are. So what is a Karen? What is a Becky to those who don't know? Um, I think there's a, you know, one of the ways that white women's entitlement and racism shows up is in this um, kind of violent use of the police, calling 911. So we've seen recently um, the uh, Cooper incident in Central Park or uh, in Oakland a couple of years ago, the white woman who called the police on the family barbecuing. And so um, the Black family that was barbecuing in the public park at the designated barbecue space. And so there's this archetype of a nasty white woman who's enacting her racism through this entitled um, manner this, and bring violence to people of color as a result. And that was a prolific kind of archetype that started um, around the time of the 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump narrative. Um, and that we want, I was very invested in being able to create a space where we could hold white women to a higher account and we can, we could collectively say we can do better than this. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. We can do better than this. And, and one of the things that I loved in the class about how you were showing people that they can do better than this is because you were giving them examples of white women who have done better than this including like Ann Braden and Jane Elliott. And so for those folks who, who don't know who those folks are, um, do you mind just sort of sharing a little bit about why these are inspirations and why there are pillars and examples um, for people to say, well, I don't just have to be a Karen or a Becky. Well, I think for a lot of us as white people, we, we didn't have growing up white elders who showed us how to be anti-racist or even how to talk about race and racism. How to talk about whiteness. We didn't, we didn't experience that, most of us in our childhoods. And so often for us, it comes to us pretty belatedly as adults when we're doing this work to recognize and realize that there are actually white people who have been resisting for a long time, for centuries actually. And so to have somebody like Ann Braden, who was from uh, Alabama and um, as an adult lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and with her husband integrated housing um, in Louisville. She was active, I think, in the like kind of 50s through the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, is It's powerful for white people to realize that we are not the first ones or the only ones who are 
fighting for racial justice, right? That we are part of a legacy. We have ancestors who have been doing this work for a long time and that it is part of who we are and who we can be in the world. And we can rely on and lean on our ancestors to show us the way. Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, you are both, I believe, in the South. Is that right? Yeah, we're both based in North Carolina. Right, and and to the degree, yeah, I know. There's probably some, some, you know, where is the delineation, right? But but right, and so, you know, this idea of... um, you know, sort of having um, a perspective because I'm coming at this from New York and, you know, there's people who listen to this from all over the world or whatever. But um, I think racism in terms of American racism, um, one can uh, pretty reasonably and pretty sustainably argue is rooted in um, a geography that spreads to a philosophy and a cultural um, and a systemic and an institutional um, and an internalized, uh, you know, way of, of oppressing. Um, but that um, a lot of it is, is, is in a way very close to home um, from your lived experience in terms of what you were saying, Carrie, with uh, people not having, uh, you don't have a mentor there. You know, you didn't grow up uh, with ease talking about uh, racism uh, or even naming it. Um, Evangeline, how about you? I, I think that there's um, uh, one of the myths of white supremacy is the myth of the hero and the myth of going it alone and individualism. And it's a it's a fairly entrenched idea. It comes with um, ideas about how to make it in the United States and the American dream. And one of the things that I think the course does by lifting up our white ancestors and by lifting up collective action is that we we really want to impart to people in the class that this isn't a, a journey by yourself. It may be a journey of the self, like we have to understand our own personal connection to whiteness and white supremacy, but it's also about inspiring white women to join us in recognizing that we have a collective identity and that we can take collective action. So the emphasis on the ancestors is part of this idea of combating individualism. And I think that's something Mm -hmm. that um, ties into contemporary role models, not just our ancestors from the 50s or the 1800s, but looking around in our communities and thinking about how can I join with other white women who might be on the search committee or they might be downtown protesting at the police department. They may be taking lots of different choices, but I I have a choice to join with them. I don't need to be by myself in a room reading White Fragility and calling it a day. Right, right. Beautiful. Yeah, because, you know, in, in Buddhist terms or mindfulness terms, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen priest, uh, Buddhist monk says, you know, the, the, the Buddha is the Sangha, meaning that the next Buddha is the collective, is the whole gestalt of it. Like we're not in this, you know, we're, it's an illusion that we're separate anyway. And race, racism, um, those designations as, as terms of social constructs are part of that, you know, core division. Um, I think what's so interesting about what you what you teach and, you know, and what you just said, Evangeline, um, reminds me of the Wall of Moms here, um, in Portland right now. This is sort of happening concurrent to when we're taping this. Um, it wasn't happening when we were uh, doing the class that I took with you uh, a month or two ago. But since then, with the federal agents in Portland sort of swooping in um, uh, and and in protest there, they've ta- they've taken a step back. The white women that were centering themselves in the um, sort of uh, administrative aspects of that um, to allow and create space for 
um, you know, black and brown women leaders to be part of the more uh, visible and administrative piece. And I, I'm wondering if you even just sort of extemporaneously might share any thoughts on how or why you think that that might be um, a way in which there is a way to be in solidarity with, to be in community with, as a white woman, with women, right? Um, in much the same way that you talked about, um, you know, Mamie Till and then um, Catherine Bryant, right? Not having that solidarity between Emmett Till's mother as a black mother and Catherine Bryant as being a white mother that she still called on for Emmett Till's essentially execution, um, you know, as opposed to having solidarity with around that. And why is that important in terms of our contemporary way of white women as they do this work, as they lean in, as they find one another in Sangha and community, if you will, um, through classes like you have, why is that also an important way to um, be there, but also not have to always be centered? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um... Well, one thing that I just read yesterday was that the Wall of Moms filed suit along with BLM, that they actually sued the Trump administration yesterday um, about the federal agents uh, attacking protesters in Portland. So that's an interesting thing to think about is that kind of collaboration starting to happen, right, um, for legal action. Um, and I I think this is it, it always happens, right, that we're trying to figure out as white women, what is our role in movement? You know, who, from whom do we take strategic direction? Um, how do we step in without stepping on? Yeah. Um, right? How do we find a place for ourselves that makes sense in movement work and recognizes the special skills and resources that we have access to um, while not, um, while, while, making space for the people who are the most uh, impacted, right? Who are always black women uh, or indigenous women. I'll say black and indigenous women, right? And maybe immigrant women, right? So how do we as white women um, support that? One thing that happens here in Durham is that there's um, a group of white people who serve as marshals, which is similar to Wall of Moms, and they've been active for many years now, of marshalling at um, protests and uh, taking direction from local black groups to surround them when they want to be surrounded mm. or protect them in other ways um, when they want to protest. And so that, I, I feel like that coordination behind the scenes is a model of how white women can show up in a way that's informed, that's constructive, and that actually keeps the movement uh, centered the way that it needs to be centered and keeps the work moving forward. Yeah, I love that. Evangeline, you're nodding. Any, anything you want to add there? I think that there's a um, a way in which sometimes we can we have this fantasy about what social justice is or what the movement is, and I think one of the things we hit on in the class is that racism, structural racism, is pretty complicated, and it's going to take a lot of different tactics to undo it. So to combat white supremacy, we have to be we have to be nimble and we have to be, um, I guess, expansive in the ways in which we recognize the different roles that people will play. And so while right now we're talking about street action and we're talking about filing legal action, there are, there are virtually like an uh, endless number of opportunities for combating white supremacy and racism mm. in our faith communities, in our workplaces, in our families, in our universities and schools. And I, I really wanna lift up this idea that when we talk about movement building, 
we're talking about political action that could be that could look take many different forms and to to stay imaginative and nimble in our in our thinking about that yeah beautiful thank you um yeah i think that that's um it's very wise and also um it's critical to be creative and curious about the different things that um, we can do and, and that we learn. Sometimes we make a mistake. I mean, like they, you know, like they sort of self-corrected after a while, or they took in the feedback, they were accountable. They were able to still be there. They didn't say, fine, you don't want us. I'm never going to show up again. Like, you know, that's sort of our typical defense. I think a lot of the time personally in relationships with folks, but also in these other kinds of like, well, I was trying to be your friend and, you know, I was trying to be a good ally or co-conspirator or comrade, and you didn't really like what I was doing. So I, you're not using my privilege well, so I'll just go to the pool after all, you know, and it's just sort of that, that idea of the humility piece and also the solidarity piece, because there's something I think in there that appeals to the deeper, higher moral ground of humans, which when we can access it is so deep. And what was so lacking in the election of 2016 and has been ongoing since is where's the moral center around this individualism, this rugged individualism, this sort of, um, and, and what does that mean and how does that show up? And can we we invite back in a sense of ethics and um, and knowing right from wrong and being willing to not always have to be um, right or or you know be be in the center of it all. Um, so wh- why don't you guys take me through what the class is? You have like it's a four week or a six week class? I forget. Four, five. Okay, so I was sort of. <laughs> on both sides of it. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so, so maybe talk through some of the, the modules. I know what it was like to be on the, the, the receiving end. And I know it was a bit of a, a, a weird thing for you guys to shift to doing it in person. I mean, from in person to online, but um, yeah. Ta- what, what could people expect? Uh, Cause you're going to keep doing these every couple of months. And um, I want people to be able to find you and also kind of sign up if they want to, but to know what you, you have in there. Um, sure. The so it's five sessions, and the arc of the workshop is um, our best attempt to take something that we've been offering in more of a retreat setting to an online format. And we found some gifts. We found some gifts in the pile, not just challenges. So um, the first session is really about building a sense of community and welcome. So we set out kind of what our approach is to this work, um, what it means for people to be in a white a white specific space. Um, We talk about um, some of our similarities and differences. We have to do a little bit of an orientation to Zoom and what it will mean for us to be living collectively in a Zoom room for the sessions. And we really try to ground in the the history of um, over 50 years of um, Black folks and people of color asking white people to do work with one another and to, to push one another. So the first session is really the foundations. Um, I like to call it setting the space, although mm-hmm. now the space is the internet space. Mm-hmm. Um, the second session is about intersecting oppressions. So a little bit about what we talked about earlier of the, we use the Emmett Till story to talk about what it means to live at the intersection of racism and misogyny as white women and how the trope of fragile white womanhood needing protection by white men against the scary black um, uh, racist sexual predator um, that how we still live with that today and what is it about white womanhood that can be um, redeemed from that legacy and how do we turn that around Um, in session three we get into more deeply and more personally what collusion with white supremacy means for us collusion 
collusion. So how I participate, how how I'm complicit, right? Exactly. How I participate in racism, um, the ways that it benefits me when I just say, I don't want to deal with that. Or like you said earlier, I'm taking my marbles and going home because you don't like me. Um, How do we recognize the places where we use our whiteness and our, um, our privilege to push away from staying in a hard conversation or staying in a tricky place that might benefit more people of color and more white people if I stayed with it. Um, So then session four um, is about resistance. And we we really try to pay attention to embodiment. So while we're looking at shame and how shame stops us and sort of keeps us, prevents us from having a breakthrough, um, in, in session four, we talk about what resistance looks like. How do we push through that shame? How do, what does, what could it look like in the different roles that we play, as I talked about earlier? And then the last session is about taking action and making commitments and what will it, what could it look like in my life to be accountable and who, how will I be accountable to myself and other people in my community, um, as I, as I choose to take bigger risks for racial justice. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, just to say as a participant, like I said, you hold space in such a way that, you know, you sort of ground us in the beginning of the class and sort of invite the collective to sort of have a shared experience of what it's like to gather in this online cyberspace together as this group, as this cohort doing this work together. You match people with a buddy. And so people can check in with one another if they want to have personal offline conversations that are more one-on-one so that there can be some kind of a conversation of like, wow, this was really coming up for me or not. And when you give, um, quote unquote, homework, meaning that everything obviously is encouraged, but not mandated because you're taking this class, you're not in university, but yes, this is your homework. This is why you're here. Um, And that you do that kind of with the buddy and you're sort of checking in there um, about what was that for you? What was that like for you? And invite people to share in the session if they want to um, the following week. And that there's um, ceremony in the end also about sort of closure, about healing, about like making your altar and being able to sort of have this um, sacred space of recognizing the holiness of the work in a way of what it's like to actually self-interrogate and to really interrogate whiteness as a whole um, and to move toward, as you say, um, finding freedom that this is about liberation and not just about um, oppression. It's about inspiration and liberation. So, um, yeah. Terry, did you want to say anything more about the the class itself and the arc of the class and and what people's responses have been and and who you get in the class and what have they been saying? Well, who we get in the class has really transformed with the move from in-person to online work. So most of the time when we had done this workshop in the prior three years, we were in North Carolina. So we had, sometimes we had people come from surrounding states for it, but it was typically a very Southern group and often a very North Carolina focused group. And it quick, that has quickly changed as we've moved it online and people Mm -hmm. have been spreading the word about it. So we're seeing people from all parts of the country. We're seeing some Canadians. um, We're seeing a different mix of people. Um, And we're also seeing that the class makeup of the group is shifting. So it used to be a more, when we do it in person, it's a more like class diverse group of people, more working class people and poor people. And that's something that's shifted over time as we're doing this online is that it's moving more towards the Northeast. It's moving more towards people with class privilege. And we know that because we have sliding scale. So we are tracking that as something that means that we want to start talking more explicitly about the role of class 
um, the relationship between working class and poor white people and white people with class privilege is part of what upholds white supremacy. Like white supremacy wouldn't exist if there wasn't that dynamic. Mm. Um, and so I know for me as a working class person, I'm really invested in that conversation being a part of what we talk about because I don't think we can undo this without taking a closer look at capitalism and a closer look at the relationship between that, um, between class and race. And so um, that's one thing that shifted. And also we are now, because we have a lot more people from outside the South, we're now talking a lot more explicitly, even from when you did the workshop about the role of Southern organizing, the history of Southern organizing. What does it mean for um, people to organize in spaces that have a long history of being controlled by the far right? And uh, recognizing that some of the most powerful revolutionary solutions come up out of those environments. Mm, so, mm. like, also, I think it's an opportunity for folks from all around the country to learn not just the racist history of the South, which is alive and well, but also the history of resistance from the South. Right. Um, so we feel like that's a pretty powerful offering for people in other parts of the country and even for Southerners, too. Um, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. No, I mean, to be inspired is to be motivated is to recognize I don't have to, I, I, it feels sometimes like this is overwhelming and I'm doing it alone, but there's actually a history here. I remember I was talking to Cornell West and said, he said it was, um, well, he's like, well, what about John Brown? You know, nobody talks about him anymore, you know, the abolitionists. And, you know, like, he's like, there is a, there are white people and white men in that case who, you know, although again, nobody's perfect, you know, did stand up for um, racial injustice and and and, and did, um, and paid prices for that, right? Um, which is often often the case. Um, so maybe let's talk about that. Let's do two things. Can we define white supremacy or whiteness? And are they the same or not? Just for people who maybe like, what is whiteness? What do you mean? Or what is white supremacy? I know what I think it means, but you know, people may not really kind of get that. And why is it um, not just enough to say, you know, that all lives matter and wait, I, I don't mean any harm or gee, you know, um, everybody's my sister and, you know, whatever it is. Um, I know big questions, but. Those are some big questions. <laughs> well, you didn't answer it in any way. There's no right or wrong. This is, this is fluid. You know what I mean? This conversation is fluid. And I just mean in this moment, when I talk about whiteness, what I guess I mean is this sort of, um, it's almost like carbon monoxide, except for that somehow it gives, you know, um, special powers to people who are in the 1%, you know, typically cishet white men, um, you know, because that's how it was constructed. Um, and that's not to say in a misogyny, it's not to say in a way of, um, I don't like white men. It's to say that there's a structure in place that unfairly privileges and benefits, um, you know, generally cisgendered cis heterosexual white men um, in this world, uh, in this Western world, in this capitalist world, um, in terms of financial gain uh, that excludes, that, that exists and is able to do that only because it excludes um, other people deemed other, additional people, other humans, not others, just humans, um, based on things like ability or gender or skin color, right? And that um, that whiteness then becomes, for me, this system through which people continue to oppress other people and sort of take in privileges and assume that it is the natural, 
assume that it is an entitlement. Assume, like, don't question it, right? It's almost like, like, I don't really question whether or not when I walk out the door, even though I'm wearing a mask, I'm going to be able to breathe. But some people who have asthma do have a question about that and might be wearing a mask even during non-pandemic times because, you know, that system of poor air quality will affect them, right? So that I guess whiteness to me is this sort of invisible, always cooking carbon monoxide, you know, only dangerous to certain populations, but often that is the majority population, right? Um, But just not uh, the position of the people that are in power that are working to preserve it because it benefits Mm. them. It's the majority of people in the United States, but the people of the global majority are people of color. So that, I think that is always helpful to frame. Um, and I also think like, I love what you're talking about, like the carbon monoxide analogy. Um, I also think it's important to name whiteness as something that's only existed for the last 400 years or so. That it literally like came to be in Virginia state law uh, in the 1600s, late 1600s, I think. So before that, there was a uh, people had an ethnic identity that wasn't tied to blackness or whiteness. Blackness and whiteness developed as a result of the colonies in the United States, and of, as a result of slavery. So to me, it's also like helpful to understand that these aren't um, things that existed since the beginning of time, they're not natural or or normal or uh, required or uh, something that just like develops up out of the ground. Like we created it, humans created it, Mm -hmm. which means that humans humans can undo it. Right. Yeah. I love that. Humans created, humans can undo it again. And from a mindfulness perspective, as many of our listeners are, we talk about greed. We talk about, you know, um, you know, this craving is the Buddhist teaching. And, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren talks about theft. You know, the problem with capitalism is that it's theft. There's, 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 it's not, it's greed unchecked. There's no, you know, there's too many, whatever you want to call them, loopholes or, or ways that you can game the system in your favor. Um, so that, that that's the piece that you're talking about with the first Portuguese slave traders that, you know, went to Africa and started non, if you were an enslaved person, you didn't work for seven years and then get your freedom. You were, you know, became here enslaved for life as well as your children's children. And that's the legacy that we have right now in this country, Um, which is, I think, why a lot of people who even in psychoanalytic circles and psychotherapist circles and mindfulness circles and whatnot that I'm in um, will often say, you know, well, you know, they have an idea or a notion that slavery was in the past. And I think right. you really are bringing in, well, what can you do about the way that that past is very much alive structurally, but also within you and the way that you think and the way right. that you you see the world? I mean, we still have Tom Cotton, who's a senator from Arkansas just in the last week, calling slavery uh, a necessary evil. So it is definitely alive and well, the the attitude that that was the, the uh, a means to an end, right? That that's the reason this country is great today. Right. So it is a lot. It's not. It's not just something in the past that we're contending with. It's alive and well in how we understand who we are as a country. Right, and with the, with no gratitude or a sense of responsibility for reparations. Right. So it's not like that's the second part of Tom Cotton's sentence is, and therefore we owe uh, the descendants of slaves a great debt. And we are, you know, it's like that's not where he's going with that statement. 
Um, it's a be grateful that we saved you from your uncivilized life and right. brought you to this fine country. So that's where I think white supremacy comes in, is this idea, I mean, going to this idea of what, what is civilized and manifest destiny and all of the um, the political and economic oppression that this country is built on is coming from this place of the white Western European way is better. And um, while we, we may not articulate it as, as often and as in that same way today as we did in the 1800s, um, I think there still translates to a dynamic that is a white supremacist culture in a lot of our universities and nonprofits and workplaces and spaces where there's this uh, unspoken understanding that being professional means a certain thing or that a particular job requires a particular advanced degree. And we have come to accept things that are professional and polite and right. And those things are often middle-class, upper-middle-class white um, ideals. And we've had the power to form that culture and create that culture because so many of us have been in decision-making roles and in culture forming roles. And now all of a sudden there's big shifts happening and some of those norms are being called, many of those norms, if not most of them, are being called into question, like the role of the police in communities mm. and pulling the veil back and recognizing what some of those um, accepted norms are, those accepted institutions are, is a way of calling white supremacy in to say, well, do we need the police to look this way to feel safe in a community? What makes a community unsafe? And asking those questions um, in a way that takes race into consideration is a way of pushing back on this white supremacist history and inheritance that we all have sort of um, lived, many of us have just lived with and accepted the comfort of not questioning. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. The comfort of not questioning. I think that is so critical. Like this whole idea of I didn't know, or I didn't have to know, or I don't want to know, or now I know, but I don't know what to do or whatever. How does that play out for the women in the class? I mean, you've certainly um, witnessed, I'm sure, some transformation short and long term uh, in the folks that you have worked with. And um, what have people, what have you seen? What have people done or said? How, how have things changed? I, mean, I think we've seen a, a lot of examples of individual and collective transformation. I'm thinking about this quote that I read recently from Flo Kennedy, who said, freedom is like taking a bath, doing it every day, right? Mm -hmm. Freedom is like a practice. You have to commit to it every single day. You commit, you recommit to freedom. Mm -hmm. And our conceptualization of this work is that um, this is about everybody getting free. Finding freedom is not finding freedom for people of color. It's the idea that when people of color are free, we all will be free, right? That's the foundation of the idea of Black Lives Matter, right? Is that when Black Lives Matter, everybody's lives will matter. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a couple of examples I can say is that I know somebody who ran for city council and won uh, because she was motivated by the class. That was exciting. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, in Massachusetts. She moved to Massachusetts and she ran for city council. Um, and I also know somebody here in Durham who was inspired to raise like $40,000 or something to buy down all of the school lunch debt in the Durham public schools. Uh, wow. There's a lot of kids who were being shamed in the lunchroom because their parents couldn't afford to pay for their lunches. 
And so she paid down all of that debt with donations and then created an escrow um, for future lunch debt. And I think that was definitely inspired by um, the work that she did in the workshop. And then the third person I can think of is a woman who moved to uh, Los Angeles and started an organization, uh, a racial justice organization for white people in Los Angeles, who was inspired wow. by the class. Wow, mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful examples. And you know, I'm and and it, as you say this, you said um, public office, city council, um, sort of more of a, a, a personal, um, you know, intervention, but also one that's sustainable with the uh, school lunch and the escrow, and then also this um, sort of nonprofit, um, you know, endeavor in in Los Angeles for for white folks, this anti-racism group. And I'm wondering what's the difference between this sort of idea of what people might think of as I'm a good white person, uh, um, but them falling into that white savior complex piece around, I must do for you. Um, I, I'm privileged and I'm lucky and I feel bad for you. I pity you. I'm doing this for you, person of color, person of less ability or whatever it is that I'm, you know, conceiving. Um, and, and you need it. So, so take this from me versus this idea of, um, accountability, ownership, humility, um, transformational sort of structural, um, internal structure and also external structure and, and policy change. Can you talk about that and how that class works with that? Well, I'll say a little bit, but I think Evangeline has something to say about this too. But one thing is that, you know, we, we consider that our work is grounded not in an alt- a model of altruism, but it's grounded firmly in mutual aid and mutual interest, right? So mutual interest is I see in my community that these problems exist. Let's say in the particular community that I come from as a white working class person, I see addiction as a huge problem, right? In my family and in my larger community. And there's lots of communities of color who also have that experience. Or I see that some of my family don't have access to high quality healthcare that they need. Same in communities of color. Um, there are lots of issues like that, that, uh, we may not have the exact same experience of it. You know, it may play out in in a more harsh way for people of color, but my community also is struggling with some of those same issues. And so the goal is to work towards, uh, finding those places where we have mutual interest and then establishing trust in order to start being able to work together politically for change. Right. Mm. So that's a very different model than I'm going to extend racial justice to you as a person of color. Right. Right. Thank you for that. I I think a lot of people, um, when they talk about racism and doing anti-racist work, the conversation is like, you know, I want to, I got to do this thing for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color people. And I'm like, well, can you please start with interrogating whiteness? And looking in the mirror and how, like you say, are, you know, is there collusions or ignorance or whatever it is, and then go from there. Um, Evangeline, what would you like to, to, to offer? I mean, I, I have had the most, um, I would say, intimate and transformative experiences facilitating this workshop with bearing witness to the personal transformations that people go through the tenderness and the vulnerability. And what I what I want to say about this is that this is soul work. Um, it is it is absolutely soul work. And when people ask me why I do racial justice work, I, I very, very strongly believe that I'm trying to, 
I'm trying to save my own integrity. I'm trying to save my own spirit. I want to be able to look in the mirror. I want to be able to live with myself. And I think that at the end of the day, um, if you have a charitable perspective on this work, you're still you're still making it about the other. Mm. You're not making it about your own soul, your own personal journey. And you know, when we talk about white supremacy and whiteness, it's like there's a wound. Like being the oppressor brings carries a, a soul a spiritual wound. It's not um, it's not like I don't want to romanticize it, you know, but I, I feel like as a cis person, like I don't, you know, I'm a woman, I'm Jewish, I'm in my early 50s, I, I'm queer. So I hold a lot of these margin identities. One place where I feel I maybe I hold a mainstream uh, identity is around my socioeconomic class. And I, I'm not going to say that like, I don't want to romanticize having that privilege, but I want to say that there, there comes some deep and powerful questioning that I have to do with my family's relationship to capitalism, with what I've inherited financially and ideologically from coming from growing up in wealth. And the same thing is true with whiteness. I have to do some accounting with myself about what it means to be part of um, uh, the the history of oppression that the institution that that institution is part of, and so for me it's soul work, and therefore it can't be charitable because I'm doing this to figure out my own um, health, my own mental health, my own spiritual health, the way that I want to be in relationship with people of color in my community, and because of that, it's not about saving anybody else. It's not about like rescuing. It's about deep relationship building with people. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's ancestor work. Mm-hmm. You know, and the soul work sure. is is ancestor work. Like we have a community of people behind us, both blood relatives and other. And for me, like knowing my the history of my family, both around race and in more broadly, like doing this work for me, and I think for a lot of people, what we try to encourage in the workshop is that people start to understand themselves as coming from a family, coming from an ethnic identity, coming from a particular history and place, right? We didn't just like get dropped down um, as a historical white people. Um, we have we have histories that landed us where we where we stand. So whose shoulders are we standing on and who are we accountable to? Mm. Whose shoulders are we standing on and who are we accountable to? And we have histories. I know there's another course that I took called White Awake, and it really does invite people to kind of, you know, say, well, from whence did I came? You know, do, like, do, is, do I have Celtic traditions in my background? Is there some Scottish ritual that I don't know about? How do I, how do I reclaim some of these more grounding, more um, sort of uh, holistic, um, you know, rituals that are in my lineage that um, get washed away with um, having to assimilate into this whiteness, um, you know, American, uh, uh, I don't want to even say philosophy, but this way of being in the world here that is um, detrimental to white people. Um, so that there's a lot of privilege and there's a lot of detriment to the soul, um, sort of that moral imperative. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about the idea of, of the 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 white women who are are taking this class, how does that intersect? I mean, it's gender and it's race. And then you said also, of course, it's it's often class, right? That we know race was originally and always used not only to subjugate, but to divide when there were people trying to unite. 
and and you are meaning that there were black people and there were white people who were economically depressed oppressed who when were when they were coming together around labor abuses were being told um well we're going to give you white people you know some acreage here but not you black people because um you know we we want to create this division so you don't unite and have that um that strength um, of, of that unity. So this was, you know, reinforced a million times over uh, in terms of the division around class lines and then how, you know, white wealth has been generated through policies, uh, you know, since then um, for, for eons uh, like that. And, and those policies exist uh, today. But can we talk a little bit about the, the, the gender piece, kind of going back to what you said in the original piece around white women, white, you know, college educated women even voting for Trump um, and, uh, and how that sort of plays out with this unique way of maybe appealing to a different piece or place. Because in my experience, there's a lot of shame that comes up with white women when they're doing this work. And that shame tends to be very collapsing and also tends to be a place of um, feeling very helpless and um, maybe talking instead about what could be an antidote to that if we're, you know, sort of running into that, um, in addition to, you know, the sort of people that you mentioned earlier that are inspirational, like the Ann Braden and the um, Jane Elliott, um, but that how do you guard against shame with white women doing this work? Because I feel like that comes up a lot. Yeah, I mean, one idea that's out there is that historically white men are the rule makers and white women are the rule enforcers, which can be a helpful frame to understand kind of what our position is, right? Mm. Um, maybe we are not the ones who, or haven't historically been the ones who've been able to make the rules. And there's a lot of ways that as a result, we've been excluded historically from things. Um, access to capital, prop, you know, whatever, lots of things, access to education. Um, and we have played a particular role historically of enforcing those rules. And I think it's really like one of the things we're asking people to explore in the workshop is what have you gained from accepting those terms, right? What, what are the, how has it benefited you to accept those terms. And maybe you inherited those terms because that's what your your mother did and your grandmother did and et cetera, but still you accepted them, right? Maybe not consciously. Um, and then looking at kind of what, what were the ways that, that that benefited you? What were the ways that it hurt you? You know, that you were harmed by that um, bargain or negotiation. And what would it be like to realign your um, loyalty and your energies in a different way that, that was more in alignment with your own values, which requires you to know your own values. You know, like sometimes what we're doing in the workshop is asking people to dig deeper into what are your actual values and mm -hmm. where are the gaps between your professed values and the way that you actually show up. Right, the way that you actually use the power that you have as the enforcer of the rules. A lot of white women are gatekeepers, you know, we're gatekeepers as teachers, as nurses, as um, as social workers, as um, nonprofit workers who control resources, as HR people. Um, there's a lot of ways that women, white women, serve as gatekeepers for resources and access to things, and so. 
what would it be like for you to realign around different values that didn't um, uphold the rules that white men made and that mm. actually predominantly benefit them? You know, one of the things I think when we look at abolition, that's really important for us as white women is to consider um, how has the um, criminal justice system served us and how has it failed us? You know, even though it's traditionally like the history of it has often been about protecting white women. How many of us have actually been protected when we needed it? You know, especially if the perpetrators were white men. Well, you use that example with Emmett Till's um, accuser, Carolyn Bryant, and then Catherine Carolyn. Carolyn. Carolyn, that was right the first time. Okay. Um, uh, about her husband being abusive. Her yeah. husband, you know, the person who murdered Emmett Till, um, one of them. And, um, and that that was something that she was enduring perhaps um, concurrently with her defense of patriarchy and her accusation of um, this 14-year-old black boy um, and his subsequent execution. Um, yeah, there's there's like an insidious family. Like if you, if you distill everything that Carrie's describing down to a family unit and you look at it through a heterosexual Christian perhaps lens, um, I think of it sometimes like my shorthand for this is the good wife. Mm. And I, I think yeah. that it's not, um, I don't know, this may take us into a different direction, but I don't think it's a, like sometimes I'm very aware of the fact that we are both LGBT identified. We're both queer identified. And I think that there's a nuance of this that is particularly challenging and painful for straight women to look at, am I protecting my husband at the expense of my sister yeah. or my mother or my, you know, my cousin? And what does it mean to be in that corner, trapped in that corner? So just, I, I think there's, there's a way in which we can look at this through a family systems perspective, but then blow it up to the level of society, the level of culture. But for me, the archetype is the, the good wife, right? Not the TV show, but like the phenomena of like, I want to be the good white wife. I, my husband makes the rules and then I enforce them with the kids. And that, that there's a brokenness there that is all about sexism, all about misogyny, all about homophobia, um, the gender binary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love what you're saying because it really, um, it just, for me, uh, as a cishet woman um, who, um, really has not enjoyed um, being breathing the ether of patriarchy any more than anyone, um, especially when it comes to relationships, um, trying to have a sustainable, healthy um, relationship. It almost is impossible because patriarchy requires a disavowal in many ways of, um, you know, that sort of equity and equality because it's a dominance model and because it is a model of extraction and that to collude with the um, relational aspect of things, which everyone human wants to be relational. Every human wants to connect. Everyone wants to be, you know, having a family and, you know, doing the right thing and these kinds of things. But how much do you have to sacrifice and collude within yourself? And then all that internal suffering that many white women do hold, but then turn around and hold up, as you say, frontward facing or outward facing, um, you know, white cishet wives, maybe, but shall I say, you know, that were out, outward facing to, um, 
to the world around protecting that, that family union at the expense of what would otherwise be a more liberatory position because it feels like they're, as you say, stuck between a rock and a hard place and it has to be one or the other given the system, given the, the patriarchal system. Um, and I think that it's a revelation for many straight women to come to understand that the, that the thing you just described is also about white supremacy. Right. Like many people, I think, can have the analysis that there, that there's uh, misogyny or patriarchy baked in to heterosexual relationships and between a white woman and a white man. Um, but it's harder for us because whiteness is so, you know, kind of backdropped or invisible to understand that, that, that participation in that is also holding up, upholding white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, yes. And that, 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 and not to say that there isn't patriarchy in other ethnicities, you know, and other relationships and cultures and all of that, because there most certainly, <laughs> there most certainly yes, is, and, yeah. and it can be very dominant and, and extractive and, and horrible. I mean, brothers kill sisters, um, at times when it's the sister who's been raped, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's beyond, um, you know, as we're sort of starting to wind down, we maybe have five more minutes or so, um, to, to chat. I just wanted to ask a little bit about sort of really your own accountability moment. Like, like, I know you kind of said, okay, well, 2016, that was when we decided to offer the class, but like, I sort of, you know, it's been coming to me where I'm just like, oh yeah, I mean, of course I'm racist, but then how do you be an anti-racist racist, as someone said to me, right? Like, how do I undo, like, to not, to not have an expectation that I wouldn't be racist and to own the fact that I am and I'm working to not be, and I'm in that path and that process because I'm in that structure, because I keep looking and I'm like, oh yeah, well, that's a racist thought. Or, or Dick Schwartz might say, well, that's a racist part or that's a racist action. So I can create some distance there, right? I can say, well, that was a racist thought. Or, but to own that at a certain level and to just say, yes, there have been plenty of times when I have had you know, those thoughts, those feelings, those actions, those behaviors, but not in the way that, and, and I'm talking personally, I'm talking because there's individual racism and there's structural and policy racism. But owning that seems to be one piece toward this collective freedom and the collective healing. And I don't know if you have encountered that within yourselves at all or or not, or what that was like for you if you have. I mean, in dialectical behavior therapy, they talk about observing and describing. And to me, that seems like a key step uh, in the beginning is just to start observing um, all the things that we were trained as children not to see or not to talk about. What does it mean to just start seeing and talking about them, right? As a very, very basic first step. Um, Most of us can recall incidents of racial injustice that we witnessed as kids and they were never processed or nobody ever, you know, or they were processed in a messed up way. And so what does it mean to just start observing and describing at a most basic interpersonal or personal level, like noticing things we've been trained to look away from that we've been trained to ignore. I mean, that seems to me like one step, you know, in this thing that I really understand to be kind of like a calling to service 
you know, like I'm called to serve in a particular way um, as a way to make amends for my ancestors and also because I want to get free myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the leverage for a lot of people. This benefits you too, which is so ironic. Like we know white male suicide is the highest percentage. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, why is that? Well, perhaps because there's so much internal emotional suppression that has to take place to exist in this white supremacist society. And if you fail, quote unquote, if you're not at the top of the heap um, financially or something like that, then, you know, there's little hope for, you know, perhaps. Yeah, Um, there's a lot of space in this work for white men to step up and start talking to each other. So that would be welcome. It's, um, It's definitely something that we've been approached and asked about. And you know, we know there's a, a there is some work happening, and there's room for for that part of this movement to grow. Um, I I also think that for me, the noticing that Carrie's describing is important. But again, that idea that I can't just be in my head, and I think one of the things that we've learned from the workshop and attendees is that so many white women isolate. Um, they think they're the only one who wants to say something at the staff meeting, or they think they're the only one who wants to bring something up at church. And they keep we keep telling ourselves, I'm by myself, I'm all alone, nobody will support me. And I create this story, and then I don't find a buddy, I don't organize. And um, I, I believe that that noticing of those racist thoughts is important and helpful and recognizing when I, I stayed silent, when I shouldn't have but I need someone to talk that through with. I need someone that I can have a cup of tea with and say, I want to describe this thing to you and I want you to help me understand what I could have done differently. Right, right. And I love that you're saying that because it reminds me of um, mindfulness teacher, Dharma teacher. Her name's Ruth King. She wrote a book called Mindful of Race and she talks about racial affinity groups. So have three or four people over for coffee once a month of your same race and talk about these issues with that. And it could be white. It could be like me, mixed ethnicity group of people of like, you know, different backgrounds, but in the same body. Um, and then it could be, you know, black people, indigenous people, whatever, Korean Americans, whatever, um, and do that work. Um, the last thing is why is it important to have a separate space for this? Like, why is it important for a white women to have this separate space to your point about white men having that space, because a lot of times people will say, you know, it's, it's, it's reverse racism or it's, why are you, you know, why are you having a black only meditation, you know, group, or why are you having a white women only, you know, uh, anti-racism finding freedom group, or, you know, it's exclusionary or, you know, I'm just being devil's advocate here. Well, it has traditionally not worked out well for people of color for white people to be alone in a room talking about race. So that's true. And because because that's the history of, of like active white supremacist organizing against people of color. Right. That's the, that's like the basis of uh, the Klan and lots of other organizations. Right. I'm saying white people alone in a room talking about race has traditionally been dangerous for people of color. I understand. Okay, got it. I I was confused about what you meant about that. But yes. Mm -hmm. We understand like why there's sometimes skepticism about what it means for white people to be in alone in a room talking about this stuff. And at the same time, we are responding to those 60 years of asks from black leaders for us to do exactly this, who have been very clear for a very long time that this is our job and it's also necessary. 
right? That movement, the movement cannot move forward if white people don't do this work amongst ourselves. So um, I think it's like a, we're asking people to hold this dialectic of doing that work and then also making sure that they are learning how to ground themselves in communities of color where they have authentic relationships, they have deep enough relationships that they have their ear to the ground and can understand what strategic direction they're being asked to take, right? That they understand like where they're, where they should step and not step. Um, and that's like, it's a big ask. Like we're asking you to step in to community period. And we're asking you to step into white community and we're asking you to step into communities of color and then have those two things be informing each other. Right. And it, this isn't like infotainment, right? You can't just sit and consume anti-racist books and articles and get out of this alive. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's adopting an active community-based stance and doing this work every day. That's like, that's, that's what we're asking people to do and inviting people into. In order to be more effective in multiracial space, right? Yeah. If we just jump into multiracial space with all of our story and with all of our unresolved shame, we're going to actually take up a lot of room potentially and not stick with it and not persevere. And it will be a stop start. And then, as you said earlier, we'll say, well, I can't be here. These people don't want me here mm. and I'll just walk away. So I actually think you need race alike caucus space in order to build effective multiracial spaces. The yes. goal is to be effective and loving and efficient and effective and revolutionary in multiracial space. But this is the sort of battery pack that comes with that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Do this as the foundation or as one of the initial pieces. Yeah, I got that. Um, and, and it's like it's not like Right. Like even while you're in multiracial space, right. you also need spaces to, yeah. Right. Right. So that you don't do harm. So that you don't do harm. Do harm because you're going to do harm. Right. You're going to do harm. That's going to happen. And it's not that this place of like, I'm going to become the perfect white person and never do harm. By definition, when we step into multiracial spaces, we're going to make mistakes. And to have a group of white people who have your back, kind of your backbench that you can process those mistakes with or questions that you have is like what builds resilience for us to keep showing up. Beautiful. Yeah. The resilience as opposed to the fragility. Um, I, I really love all the work that you're doing. I think it's so exciting and it's such a, um, it's a warm container. It, it's not um, an easy soft, uh, it, like as in um, you know, I, I've sort of come up with this word lately, an elegant ferocity, meaning that it's fierce, but it's also not in such a way that it's so um, harsh. Um, you know, it may be uncomfortable, but it's not intentionally, uh, uh, you know, demeaning or harsh. It's very invitational. Um, and so I would welcome everyone to um, come and take your next cohort. Can you mention a little bit more about how they can do that? Sure. Um, the next, the one, the next time that we're going to have um, an open space is uh, October seventh. So we're going to start five consecutive Wednesday evenings East Coast time on October seventh, and you can find tickets at Eventbrite by putting in "Finding Freedom" in the search bar, or you can go to the website www.gobeyondconflict.com and. And there'll be the Eventbrite link on that website as well. So that's where you can find Finding Freedom. 
And I just want to say thank you so much for inviting us and diving into these super juicy questions. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thank yeah, you so much, Francesca. No, it was really, it was really my pleasure. And, um, you know, like I said, I think, you know, the one thing I'll say is I did not, I mean, I'm multi-ethnic. I'm Haitian, Dominican, and Italian-American. And I grew up in an Italian white home in an Italian white town. And, you know, not entirely Italian town, but a white town and went to a white school. And my my complexity and understanding of my own multi-ethnicity was always there, but I didn't have a lived experience as a person of color. And I was always accompanied by my mom and my grandfather. And so I have a lot of... Um, sort of unawareness around um, the full impact, although I've suffered a lot of gender-based stuff, you know, like more the fetishization and objectification about mixed women, which I won't get into um, because we're closing. And um, also it's really not what we're talking about today. But my point is, is that it has been an awakening for me to do this work for the last five years or so. And it has and will continue to be my life's work and my, you know, sort of dedication to, um, as you say, um, collective liberation. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time and um, be well. Thank you. Bye, Carrie. Bye, Evangeline. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNowToday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.